0: In your copy of the scriptures, Um, we're first going to begin this morning in Acts 22. Um, We'll not camp out there this morning. We'll be um, sitting in Romans 1 uh, during our time together, but we're going to start out there in Acts 22. Um, My name is Jared Manning. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Bible. I get to serve on our music team and um, with students and many other things. Am I going to ring the whole service? (laughs) Okay um I, if i'm bothered by it i know y'all are um so uh i, I get to serve here and um in many capacities, and it's a privilege and an honor to get to stand before you today and open up God's Word and, um, and teach, and so I pray that this morning I'm um, be a blessing to you. Um, pray God would change our hearts by His Word this morning and our time together. Um, the next time I preach, I'll be beginning a series um, called The End, How Future Hope Impacts Present Struggles. And um, so we'll be looking at the end of the world, what that means for Christians, what that means for unbelievers, um, and how that impacts our life today um, in, in the current situations that we're in. Um, in 2002, uh, Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. Many of you in this room have probably heard of The Purpose Driven Life. It sold over 30 million copies worldwide. And it's the second most translated book in the world next to the Bible. Um, next to the Bible, it has been translated into more languages than any other book in the world. Whatever you think of this book or however you feel about it, The Purpose Driven Life shows that people want to know why they are here and what their purpose is. People want to know why they're here and what their purpose is. And I want to tell you this morning that our purpose is to live out the gospel. This morning we're going to be talking about the gospel-driven life. Not, not simply the purpose-driven life, but the gospel-driven life. And we're going to look at the life of the Apostle Paul for our example in that. Do I need to grab another microphone? Will that help? or um, okay sorry I I don't want to the sound guys have a really hard job y'all need to know that yes Um, yes I gotcha Um, and and so I don't want to call them out or (laughs) I just know that it can be distracting for y'all and so I don't want us to continue if it's a distraction Um, alright let's pray shall we let 's pray God we, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to gather um, to worship with fellow believers um, God, we thank you for your word. we thank you that you did not leave us um, without instruction um, but God that you 've told us how you expect to be worshipped you have told us. Um, how we are to live in light of what you have done. And so, God, I pray that as we look at this text this morning, you will draw us closer to yourself and that you will transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That we would be um, driven by the gospel, would be moved by the gospel, and we would be changed by the gospel to your glory and your glory alone. Help us as we look at the life of Paul to have the same desire um, to live out the gospel every day, to rest in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we want to look at the life of Paul. If we're going to look at the life of Paul and see what it means to live a gospel-driven life, then we need to begin in Acts chapter 22. Um, Acts 22, Paul himself basically lays out his testimony. He tells where he came from. Um, what the Lord has done in his life And what his calling is And so um, he, he begins here He's brought before a tribune To, to give his, make his case They are persecuting him for teaching this gospel And so he comes in in Acts 22 um, And offers his testimony of what the Lord has done And let's begin in verse uh, 3 I am a Jew, Paul says, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, being the Christians, to the death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I receive letters to the brothers and I journey toward Damascus to those also who are there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul was um, our present day Isis. He was killing Christians. He was dragging them out of their homes. He was going from city to city wherever he heard these people of the way were meeting. And he was making sure that they stopped spreading this message of Jesus. And in verse 6, As, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing by me, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the testimony of Paul. Paul, originally named Saul of Tarsus, was raised in a Jewish home. He was a Jew by birth. He was serving as a religious leader. And he was persecuting Christians, overseeing the death of people who would follow Jesus. And in Romans 1, he, he, he introduces himself by saying, I am an apostle called by Jesus Christ. Set apart, Romans 1, 1 says, for the gospel. So turn with me, if you would, to Romans 1. That's where we'll be camping this morning in Romans 1. I wanted to give you a little background on Paul. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never been in church, and people throw this guy's name around all the time because he wrote most of our New Testament, um, and so or a lot of our New Testament anyway. And so I wanted to give you a background of who this guy is. Paul, a murderer. Somebody who has killed people because they trusted in Jesus, and now Paul says he's been called out by Christ as an apostle to go to the nations He's been set apart for the gospel. We learn in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel message, Paul says, which I deliver to you as of first importance, is this, that Christ died for our sins and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That, that's the gospel. Christ died for our sins and he rose again the third day according to the scripture. This is the gospel for which Paul has been set apart. So let's look at Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, someone who speaks for God. Among these people set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So Paul opens this letter by saying the gospel is for everyone. Paul originally thought the promises were only for the Jews. He thought that was it. He was a Jew himself. And now it's been revealed to him that the gospel is for the whole world. And so he says, I have been called by the Lord to this gospel for the sake of his name among all nations. All people will worship at the feet of Jesus to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his opening, his his greeting. Um, many of us couldn't write a letter that long, and that's simply Paul's greeting. He defends who Christ is, tells us that he's been preached throughout the Old Testament, that he has come for all nations And now he begins the body of his letter in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As we look at what it means to live a gospel-driven life, I want us to look at just these few verses. Paul gives us a glimpse into what it looks like to live a gospel-driven life just here in the beginning of his letter to the Romans. Paul exhibits a gospel drive in everything he does. Verse 8. First, he has gospel-driven priorities. He begins his letter with thankfulness. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Paul gives thanks as he begins this letter. Apart from the work of Christ, Paul recognizes these people would not be his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he recognizes the sovereignty of God over their lives, over all situations, and he gives thanks. Christians who are marked by the gospel are marked by thankfulness and gratitude. You've probably heard the old cliche, we should have an attitude of gratitude. As Christians, we should have an attitude of gratitude. We recognize that everything we have is given to us and undeserved. As Paul begins the body of his letter to these brothers and sisters, he recognizes that everything they have and everything that he has in his relationship with them is thanks to Jesus Christ. It's nothing that he has done. It's nothing that they have done. And so he begins by giving thanks. Notice what he's thankful for. I thank my God for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He doesn't say, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your attendance is increasing in Rome. I've seen the numbers. They're getting bigger. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your giving is up. Good job, guys. You're giving. That's, that's great. He doesn't say first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because the building you worship in is spectacular. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. The, the community looks upon it with awe. No, he doesn't thank God for that. He doesn't thank God, because they have a bunch of Twitter followers or they have a bunch of Facebook likes. No, he he thanks God for them that their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world, it says. The faith of these Roman Christians is being proclaimed throughout all the world. The question I have for you this morning, can that be said of Grace Bible Church? Can it be said of us that the faith of the people who are a part of this body, who worship with this body, is proclaimed throughout the entire Brazosport area, throughout the entire state of Texas, throughout the nation, or throughout the world? Are we a people who are marked by the gospel in such a way that people know us by our faith in Jesus Christ? Paul gives thanks. But notice that he's even thankful for the fact that their faith is being proclaimed in all the world. A heart of thankfulness recognizes that we are we are passive in many aspects of our life. Paul thanks God that their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. He recognizes this is an act of the Holy Spirit. This is not an act of these people. These people have not Trained themselves in such a way, marketed themselves in such a way that everybody knows what they're doing. It's an act of the Holy Spirit that the word is going out, that these people's faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. Paul has gospel-driven priorities. He starts by giving thanks and then notice where he goes in verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul has gospel-driven prayer Prayer drives Paul, or the gospel drives Paul to pray for these brothers and sisters. He prays for the believers in Rome that he has never even met. Notice this. He's praying that he might come to them because he hasn't met them yet. He's praying for people that he doesn't even know. We have problems remembering to pray for those whom we know very well. But Paul remembers to pray for a group of believers whom he's never met why because Paul is driven by the gospel he's driven by the desire to see the gospel go forth and he remembers these brothers and sisters in prayer how often does the gospel drive us to pray Do we recognize its power? Do we see its power? Do we pray for the unbelievers that live two houses down from us or next door to us across the street that work in the cubicle across from us? See, if the gospel infiltrates our hearts and our souls and our minds in the way it does, Paul, we are going to be constantly reminded of the lost people around us and their need for the gospel. And we'll be just like Paul. We'll pray for people we don't even know. Or we've never even met. People in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. And Cambodia. And Colombia. All over the world. We'll be praying for people we've never even met. That the gospel might reach them. And that they might respond to it. He prays specifically though. For for one thing. Here. Here. Verse 10, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul wants to meet with these brothers and sisters in Christ. He's going to tell us in a little bit he's been hindered. But he wants to meet with these brothers and sisters in Christ. The gospel should drive us, number one, to thankfulness. For our brothers and sisters, it should drive us to pray for brothers and sisters and unbelievers around the world. The gospel should drive us to desire fellowship with one another. Should drive us to desire fellowship, which brings us to our second point this morning, that we would have a gospel desire. We would have a gospel drive and that we would have a gospel desire. Verses 11 through 15. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Notice Paul's strong desire here to visit with these believers in person. To spend time with these brothers and sisters in the flesh. Today we spend a few hours on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter stalking people and we feel that we know them. Right? Because of social media we feel like we know people. Well I know that their kid was sick yesterday. I know that they got mad at the drive-thru clerk yesterday. I know know how they're feeling this morning because they told me on Facebook. You know the events of their life. You see the pictures from sporting events, from weddings, from family get-togethers, picnics, beach runs, whatever it is. And we think somehow that because of that, we know people. Listen to me. Just because you know what somebody's doing at a certain moment in time does not mean you know them at all. And social media is the highlight reel of people's lives. I heard this story... um, Last year at a conference in Dallas, a Pastor Tullian Chavidian from Florida was sharing a story um, about his family. He was talking about the same subject, that social media is the highlight reel of people's lives. And he said, we went to the park on a beautiful Saturday. He said, not one kid in my house wanted to go to the park for a picnic, but my wife wanted to go to the park for a picnic. And so he said, we were going to the park for a picnic because mom wanted to. So all the teenagers had to get in the car. We're going to the park. You're going to have a good time because your mother wants to have a good time. And he said, we got there. Two of them are bickering with each other. Two of them are on their phones, not even paying attention to us. Me and my wife kind of eat alone. They go throughout the day. Everybody's mad. Everybody's cranky. Nobody wants to be there. He got in a fight with his oldest son. And he said, but before we left, we had to get the family picture, right? Right? And so he said, we all got together, and I'm popping kids on the back of the head to get them to stand up straight and smile at the camera, and he said, we got a picture, everybody was smiling, everybody seems happy, and that thing goes up on Instagram, family day at the park, right? And if you see that picture, you're thinking, oh, what a lovely family, They had a great day at the park. So you didn't see all the events that transpired around that picture. You didn't see he and his oldest son bickering with each other. You didn't see the younger two kids fighting. You didn't see everybody disinterested in even being at the park. You saw the highlight reel. Recent studies have shown even that social media is driving depression rates in the United States because when you're sitting at home on Friday night by yourself and you scroll through Instagram and see all the fun that everybody else is having it makes you feel lonely it makes you feel like your life is is not as great as theirs social media is a danger when we think that we know people because we've followed them on some kind of social media just because you comment on someone's status or like somebody's photo doesn't mean that you've had fellowship with them certainly doesn't mean that you know them we only see on social media what people want us to see we only know what people want us to know interaction through technology and devices is not equivalent to doing life with people that's why here at Grace Bible Church we have emphasized over and over that you be involved in a life group. That you have a small group of people who you're doing life with on a daily basis, who you hear from. They know your struggles. You know their struggles. You can encourage one another. You can walk through life together. Paul had social media too, some pen and paper. But for Paul, writing letters was not enough. He desired face-to-face interaction with other believers. Friends, the gospel will drive us to desire to be together with one another. But Paul didn't seek just empty fellowship. He didn't seek empty discussion. It wasn't just to be together for the sake of being together. Paul had a specific purpose for which he wanted to be with these believers. He goes on to tell us exactly why he wanted to see these people face to face. See, we can come together in our small group meetings and have no focus of where our time together is going to go. We don't know what we're there for. And it's perfectly fine to say, hey, we're going to just spend time together. Fellowship, have fun together, that's great. But if that's all it ever is, that is not the gospel life that Paul is pointing to here in Romans 1. He has specific desires for his time with them, and he shares those with us. See, his, his desire for fellowship wasn't just to see what the Roman believers were wearing to church. He wasn't there to see what Mrs. Jones had put on that day or what kind of suit Bob was wearing. No, no, he had specific desires. He wasn't there to get the latest scoop on Dave and Betty's marriage. He didn't desire fellowship for the purpose of trying someone's new casserole recipe. He had a specific reason he wanted to be with them. He had a gospel desire for encouragement. Verse 11 and 12. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now this is weird language. If you read verse 11, on the surface it seems as though Paul wants to give them some kind of spiritual gift. He he says, "I, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. At first glance, it could seem that Paul wants to come into this church and lay hands on people and give them spiritual gift. And that's not what he's talking about. That, that's not what the Greek is pointing to in, in this verse. Actually, he, he's talking about, he wants to exercise his spiritual gifts among them. I want to impart to you a spiritual gift. In other words, I want to exercise my spiritual gifts among you to strengthen you. And look what he says he means by that. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul wants to come, with them, come together with them so that he can exercise his spiritual gifts and be an encouragement to them and allow them to exercise their spiritual gifts and be an encouragement to him as well. Now, if I'm a Roman Christian, I'm thinking, what in the world can I do to encourage Paul This guy's way above me on the scale of great Christians, right? Like, Paul's a celebrity. Everybody knows who Paul is at this point. What can I possibly do to be an encouragement to him? Understand this. It doesn't matter where you're at on the scale of maturity in the Christian life, how long you've been a believer, what your past was like, what you're going through right now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, you are meant for your brother and sister's encouragement. Some people have the mistaken idea that the pastors don't, don't need the encouragement of a new believer. And I would say we desperately need the encouragement of new believers. Some of you probably know um, Chuck Fricker. He's our, our drummer. Um, he, he's gone today. Um, but Chuck um, was recently baptized in and, and, and our church and, and saved. And man, Chuck is really excited about the Bible about learning about knowing God better knowing Christ better and sometimes we'll be having conversations and he apologizes he's like I know this is your job and you hear this stuff all the time and I probably am just boring you with all this stuff and I said Chuck no not at all I was like I'm encouraged when I hear people telling me about what they're learning in their Bible I don't care if I might already know what you learned in the Bible I'm encouraged to hear you tell me. I'm encouraged by the excitement that you have. I'm encouraged by new believers who are willing to do whatever it takes to share their faith. See, it doesn't matter where you are on your walk with the Lord. You are meant for someone else's encouragement. Because you have the Holy Spirit. And He's given you gifts. And we here at Grace Bible Church need your gifts. The gospel calls us to exercise our spiritual gifts for the edification of one another. That's done in community. We have to be a part of one another if we're going to encourage one another with our spiritual gifts. And we have to be with one another to encourage one another with our spiritual gifts. That's why the gathering of the church is important. That's why Sunday morning is important. That we're here to worship together. That we can encourage one another. That we can exercise our spiritual gifts together. That's why small groups are important. That we spend time together using our spiritual gifts for one another. When we were saved, we weren't just saved out of sin. We were saved into a family We were saved into a community. We were saved into the body of Christ. And if you neglect that, then you have neglected your salvation. We are collectively being saved as the church. This is not a me and Jesus salvation. You have been saved into a community and Paul points that out his first desire his biggest desire the thing that he keeps praying for is that he can be with these people and he said so far he's been held back he's not been able to get to them we don't know what that is we don't know why he was hindered He didn't just have a desire for encouragement, but he had a desire for evangelism, which is interesting. I don't want you to be unaware, verse 13, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, he said, but thus far I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. What Paul just said in verse 13 is he believes there are unbelievers among the people in the church in Rome. He says, there are people meeting with you. I need to reap a harvest. There are people in Grace Bible Church who are not saved. We can't know the heart of every person in this room. The elders can't know the heart of every person in this room. And though we have um, interview processes where, where you become a member of Grace Bible Church, ultimately we can't open you up and see your soul and know if you belong to Christ. We can only trust what you say. And Paul seems to be convinced that there are people who are meeting with the church at Rome who are not saved and he wants to come there for the purpose of evangelism. He wants those people to come to Christ. And he also says, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, there are other people in Rome who are not a part of the church yet and I want to come there so that they too would be saved. He desired to come to them, but he was hindered. I'm sure it was either raining or he had a headache or something. Or the apostles were probably playing football and he needed to stay back and watch that game rather than than go to church. No, Paul was hindered by beatings and by imprisonment. We're hindered to get together by football games or baseball games or name your poison. I mean, it... We're hindered by little things. Paul is praying desperately that he wants to come be with these believers. He's being hindered by imprisonment. Being beaten. But he still has a desire to be with them. How strong is our desire to be together? To be with the body? See, the gospel should drive us to be together. Spend time with one another. To exercise our spiritual gifts together to do evangelism. Lastly, Paul is going to tell us how he does these things. Verse 14, he said, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Um, If you're a Roman, you may be thinking, huh, did he just say he's called to the foolish so he desires to be with us? Um, I don't, I don't think Paul was trying to insult them. Um, but he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks, the barbarians, both the wise and the foolish. Listen, we are under obligation to evangelize people who are not like us. Paul, in Jewish terms, the cream of the crop. He has had the best education. He has a great bloodline. In Philippians 3, you can read his, uh, his resume. It's pretty nice. For a Jewish man. But Paul says. I'm, I'm under obligation. Under obligation. The gospel. Has put me under obligation. Both to Greeks and to barbarians. Both to wise and to the foolish. Paul recognizes his mission. Is not just in the universities. With people in the upper crust. Like him. But his his call of the gospel is to people who may be a lot lower on the socioeconomic ladder than him the gospel drives us to the poor and to the needy to the, to the helpless and the hopeless so Paul's eager to preach the gospel or are we as eager to preach the gospel <clears throat> lastly he shows a gospel dependence he has a gospel drive, a gospel desire, and a gospel dependence. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Gospel show, or Paul shows that he is dependent upon the gospel. He's not dependent upon his own merits What he has accomplished in life. He says I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul doesn't say my preaching skills. Are going to get some people to come to Christ. When I come to Rome. Paul doesn't say my education has helped me in such a way. That I can argue the case very articulately. And people will have to succumb. To my knowledge. And they'll have to come to Christ. Because. I'm going to make the best case. Paul Paul recognizes it's not by his power that anyone is saved. He recognizes that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul is dependent upon this gospel. Why does Paul see this so clearly? Look back at Acts 10, look back at Acts 22. Paul knows who he was before the gospel got a hold of him. He was killing Christians. He knew he wasn't worthy of this calling. He knew he wasn't worthy of that salvation. He knows that his education didn't get him into this relationship with Jesus Christ. See, his people who recognize who we were before the gospel and see who we are after, we would be just as dependent upon the gospel as Paul is. But so often our own pride keeps us from opening our mouth. It happened when we were in Salt Lake City. We were um, there back in March. We were we had hiked up Ensign Point, um, which is... The, the peak where Brigham Young stood and told um, all the Mormon followers that they were going to settle there in the Salt Lake Valley, that this was the promised land. This is where Jesus would return and set up his kingdom. That's a different discussion for a different day. But that's where we were. You can see a whole valley from Ensign Point. Beautiful valley. And I could see why he fooled people and told them that this was the promised land. Because it's gorgeous. And we were standing up there, and there was a young girl with her dog. Hannah was her name. And um, we talked to Hannah for a little while. She took a picture for us, and we were taking a picture for her. And um, we began to learn something about her and what she had done and where she worked. And she was actually about to move to San Francisco. And, And so we began this conversation, talked for 30 or 45 minutes, all of us talking to Hannah. Then Hannah got ready to leave, and not one of us had made a segue into the gospel to see where Hannah stood spiritually. And Hannah made her way back down the trail toward the bottom of Ensign Point. And Dave, who was one of the lead church planners, he was like, not one of us opened our mouth, did we? And we all kind of ashamed of ourselves. We're like, no, we we didn't say a word. He said, why do you think it is that we didn't say a word? And all of us came to the conclusion that it was because it was awkward. We were having discussions about where she was going, what, what she was doing for work. And we, none of us could find a, a nice, smooth segue into the gospel. So because we couldn't find that nice, smooth segue, our pride said, you're going to look stupid and foolish if you just jump in and ask her if she knows Jesus. Right? Our pride stopped us. And then Chuck said, Well, we should probably see if we can meet with her later. She was already halfway down the trail at this point. So Chuck leans over the edge of the mountain and says, Hello I'm like, oh great. <laughs> there are like eight of us. There's one of her... We've told her we're working with a church plant. She knows about LDS people. She's going to think we're crazy. (laughs) Hannah! She yells back up. Yeah? You want to go to dinner with us tonight? What? She yells back up. Sure, what time? (laughs) Okay. 5.30. So, So he's yelling back and forth to Hannah, who's down the mountain, about what time we're going to get together. So she agreed to meet us for dinner. And we're all thinking the rest of the day, there is no way she's showing up. (laughs) There are eight of us. There's one of her. She's like a young 20-something girl. And there were like five guys and one girl in our group. She's not showing up for dinner. She's had one 30-minute conversation with these people. So we get to the restaurant where she had worked and we were going to meet. And Hannah had already made reservations for us. So we go and sit down and then we find out it's Hannah's birthday. And she has agreed to meet with us for dinner. And so Hannah shows up with all of us and we had the opportunity to share the gospel with her, to talk to her about how she was raised and we don't know what will happen with Hannah. We're praying. Daisy has her phone number. And Daisy's going to be spending the summer in Salt Lake. And so we're praying that um, she and Daisy will get, be able to get together um, and build a relationship and a friendship there um, and get involved in the church plant. But that day serves as a reminder to me so often that we just need to be bold and let go of our Pride. There was not one ounce of pride in Chuck when he yelled down the side of that mountain at a girl he had just met. Everybody around us probably thought we were complete idiots. But it didn't matter. And it didn't matter to Hannah. Hannah showed up to dinner. Hannah listened to the gospel. Hannah gave us her contact information. So the question is, are we with Paul in recognizing our dependence on the power of the gospel and not in ourselves? Or do we still believe somehow it's dependent on us? That God's saving of someone is dependent upon how well we articulate the gospel or how well we argue or how well we debate. Or do I have all the answers? What if they ask me about evolution? I need to know all the answers to that. I need to be able to plug all the holes in everything that they're going to throw at me. That comes back to a pride issue. And often we talked about this before with students and I've talked about it in our life group. That often we, we think up the worst case scenario of how a conversation's going to go. Well surely they're going to ask me about the Trinity. And I can't explain the Trinity. I know it's true but I can't explain it. And then they're not going to believe in Jesus. Because I can't even explain the Trinity. And so we let those things hinder us. Rather than being like Paul and saying. I'm unashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. I've got nothing. Matt Chandler says. And I often quote him at this. I have never checkmate somebody intellectually into salvation. I can argue till I'm blue in the face, but it's going to take a work of the Holy Spirit to call someone to Christ. You can't do it, so exercise dependence upon the gospel of Jesus because it is the power. Paul recognized this, and this is why Paul is beaten, he is flogged, he is imprisoned, he is chased out of town. Over and over again because Paul doesn't care what people think about what he says or what he looks like. He recognizes that the gospel will go forth and it is the power of God. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith we live by faith in Jesus Christ we stand on his word we know that his promises are secure that he will accomplish salvation not for us not that we can make a name for ourselves but that he will make his name known to the ends of the earth and he will be worshipped we can trust that promise because it rests on his name so, do we have a gospel drive? Do we have a gospel desire, and do we exercise gospel dependence? Let us be people who are marked by gratitude and thankfulness to all that we have to God. We recognize that nothing is ours. It's all a gift. We are but stewards what we've been given. Let's have a gospel desire for one another to encourage one another as we exercise our spiritual gifts. Let us have a gospel desire for evangelism, to see the nations reached for Christ, for His glory, not to make a name for Grace Bible Church, not to make a name for ourselves, but to make His name famous in the world and to see that He is worshipped because He is due worship. Let us exercise gospel dependence, setting aside our pride, laying down our rhetorical skills, and resting in knowing that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Paul, for his life, for his example that he sets for us. God, I pray for every person in this room who has put their faith in Jesus Christ that you would help us all to lay aside our pride. God, you may be calling us to have a conversation with a coworker that's going to be awkward. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a close friend who we've known for years and we've never brought up the gospel and it's going to be awkward the first time. God, help us get over ourselves and help us to rest in you and in your gospel knowing that you will work. God, help our relationships not to be idols that we cherish to the point that we won't tell someone they're going to hell without Jesus. God, let us be a people that are marked by gratitude for all that we have and all that you are and all that you do. Conform us to the image of Jesus by the power of your word and your spirit in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can stand.